Luke chapter 2 here in just a moment. So I'm going to grab my Bible and my um, order of worship and let Steve and Billy kind of look at that while we move on to the message from Luke chapter 2. So if you want to turn there, uh, Katie and Ryan and Mercedes just did a fabulous job just reading that text. So we're just going to jump right into here. Luke chapter 2 talking about Jesus, the indescribable gift, God in the manger. I recently read this story, and I thought this story really applies today. As, uh, actually, a writer, a writer wrote this about this story. Siren Kierkegaard, the great Danish theologian of another century, tells a story of a prince who wanted to find a maiden suitable to be his queen. One day, one day while running an errand in the local village for his father, he passed through a poor section. As he glanced out the windows of the carriage, his eyes fell upon a beautiful peasant maiden. During the ensuing days, he often passed by the young lady, and guess what? He soon fell in love with her. But he had a problem. How would he seek her hand? Remember, he's a prince, and she is a beautiful peasant lady. How is he going to seek her hand? He could order her to marry him. But even a prince wants his bride to marry him freely and voluntarily and not through coercion, right? He could put on his most splendid uniform and drive up to her front door in a carriage drawn by six horses. But if he did this, he would never be certain that the maiden loved him or was simply overwhelmed with all of the splendor. As you might have guessed, the prince came up with another solution. So solution one, ordering, him to marry, ordering her to marry him wasn't the best idea. Um, solution number two, going, showing up in his best royal robes and with his best royal carriage and his best, best royal horses, not the best solution. So he came up with a third solution. In the third solution, he would give up his kingly robe. He moved. He moved into the village, entering not with a crown but in the garb of a peasant. He lived among the people, shared their interests and concerns, and talked their language. In time, the maiden grew to love him for who he was and because he at first loved her. He sacrificed his royal position and gave up all of that to win her hand. The author who shared this story concludes with this. This very simple, almost childlike story, written by one of the most brilliant minds of our time, explains what we Christians mean by the Incarnation. God came and lived among us. That's what the incarnation means. God took on flesh, became a, a human being so that Jesus entered the world fully human and fully God. And I'm glad that this happened for two reasons. One, it shows beyond a shadow of doubt that God is with us, that he is on our side and that he loves us. Secondly, it gives us a first-hand view of what the mind of God is really all about. When people ask what God is like, we as Christians point to the person of Jesus Christ. You hear that? When people ask what God is like, we as Christians point to the person of Jesus Christ. I'm going to reread Luke 2, 1 through 7. So it's a little fresher because we've had a little gap between that. I know Katie and Ryan and Mercedes read those passages very well. But I want the word of God just to soak in. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be uh, registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from the Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, 
because there was no place for them in the inn. That first seven verses, those first seven verses is about uh, Jesus' birth, of course. And then we read, of course, about the angels going to the shepherds and the shepherds going to the Christ child and worshiping. And we see right here that Jesus, our hope, is born. Jesus, our hope, is born. Let's talk about that for a minute. Mommy, Daddy, tell me a story. Have you heard that recently? What about Grandma, Grandpa, tell me a story? Have you heard that recently? I love stories. I love stories. I am drawn to stories. My children love stories. If you've had children, grandchildren, you've probably heard that before. Children and even adults are drawn to stories, aren't we? I remember when my children were younger and could barely talk, they would just come and hand me a book and say, read. That might be the only words they could say, but they would say, read. Read to me. Mercedes would come later on and say, can you read this book to me? Abigail would come to me and hand me a book and ask me to read it. They love stories too. Still, most every night before bed, they want me to read to them. And it's true that kids grow up quickly. I remember when Mercedes was in preschool, she was learning all about books. And she liked to play teacher because she likes to be the boss, okay? She likes to be in charge. And so she liked to play teacher. And we heard her talking to Abigail, and, and she was saying this. She was, saying, she was telling Abigail all about books. And she said, this is the cover, and this is the back. This is a spine. The spine holds the book together. Who draws the pictures? The illustrator. She said it just like that. Who draws the pictures? The illustrator. Later, we heard Abigail say the same things. It was great. Of course, now Mercedes is in third grade, so she is trying to play teacher with more advanced types of mathematical problems and other things. You know, but the Bible is full of stories. The Bible is one grand story composed of many smaller stories. Jesus taught in stories. In fact, there's a passage that says he didn't teach without a parable. Jesus taught in stories. And if you read all of these short stories in the Bible, you read that how we, we read how God created everything good. God created everything good. We read how humans sinned against God. We read how God sent Jesus to be born of a virgin and die on the cross for our sins. And we also read about how someday God will make all things right. We see those four common themes throughout all the stories in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, salvation is all throughout the Bible. In stories. How is Jesus our hope? You know, this is a true story. This birth narrative of Jesus. In fact, there's so much proof and defenses about the reality of Jesus, his birth and life and death, and really even his resurrection. This is a true story, unlike the fantasies that we may read about. And, and I love fantasies. There's nothing wrong with fantasies, but this is a true story. This is a story of the birth of the anointed one, and that is what Messiah means, anointed one. That is what Christ means, anointed one. Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, will save us from our sins. And our sins are the wrong things we do. To sin means to cross a moral or a divine law. Jesus is our hope and that he will save us. Jesus will save us from our sins. Jesus is our hope and that he will eventually bring peace. Jesus is our hope and that he will restore all creation and he will be the perfect king. In the future, that's still to come, Jesus will restore all creation and be the perfect king. Jesus is our hope and that he is called Emmanuel. And that means God with us. Jesus is our forever hope. I hope with Christmas we, take, we can take comfort and great joy in celebrating Jesus as our Lord's, uh, Jesus, our Lord's birth. 
The hope of the world was born. All through the Old Testament, the Bible is filled with stories. And all these stories are about people looking for the Messiah. And now he was born. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3.15, over 300, even over 400 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. And now he's born. Jesus, born in a stable which was a barn, and laid in a manger which was a feeding trough. This is a story of how the hope of the world entered the world. He is Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a story of how shepherds came to worship him, and the angels worshipped him too. This is God becoming a man. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas time. The hope of the world was born in Bethlehem. We celebrate that. Our hope has come, and he is Jesus. Is he your hope? Is Jesus your hope? Is, is he the one you're trusting in for your life now and for your eternal life later? I don't know about you, but many times I can focus my hope on things. But Jesus is my forever hope. I just need to keep telling myself that. I don't know about you, but I can easily focus my hope on politicians. But Jesus is our forever hope. I don't know about you, but I can put my hope in money. But money is only temporary hope, isn't it? Jesus takes care of our eternal need, our forever needs. He is our forever hope. I don't know about you, but I can put my hope in people. But there's only one person, Jesus, who will never let me down. Jesus is our forever hope. These are all good things, and there's nothing wrong with some things. There's nothing wrong with money. We need money to meet our needs and provide food and clothing and shelter, all necessary things of living. But it will never meet our lasting need. Only Jesus will meet our lasting needs. Placing our hope in things can overwhelm us, but not placing our hope in Jesus. A few years ago, I was talking with a Christian athlete. I think it was with FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And she talked about the great burden that she was always playing to please her coach. It helped her when she realized that she only needs to please God. It helped her when she realized that she plays for an audience of one, and that is Jesus. Jesus is our Lord, not money, not things, not people, not even our boss. Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Jesus is our forever hope. Jesus became a human being to save us. I read this recently. Actually, I heard it, and then I found the book and read it. Philip Yancey's, uh, Philip Yancey has a book called The Jesus I Never Knew. And listen to what he shares. He says, in London... Looking toward the auditorium's royal box where the queen and her family sat, I caught glimpses of the more typical way rulers stride through the world. With bodyguards and a trumpet fanfare and a flourish of bright, color, uh, bright clothes and flashing jewelry, Queen Elizabeth II had recently visited the United States. And reporters delighted in spelling out the logistics involved. Get this. Her 4,000 pounds of luggage included two outfits for every occasion— a mourning outfit in case someone died, 40 pints of plasma, and white kid leather toilet seat covers. She brought along her own hairdresser, two valets, and a host of other attendants. A brief visit of royalty, a brief visit of royalty to a foreign country can easily cost $20 million. In meat contrast, God's visit to earth took place in an animal shelter with no attendants present and nowhere to lay the newborn king but a feeding trough. Indeed, get this, the event that divided history and even our calendars into two parts may have had more animal than human witnesses. The birth of Jesus may have had more animals than human witnesses. A mule could have stepped on him 
How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. For just an instant, the sky grew luminous with angels. Yet who saw that spectacle? Illiterate hirelings who watched the flocks of others. Nobodies who failed to leave their names. Shepherds had such a randy reputation that proper Jews lumped them together with the godless, restricting them to the, uh, to the outer courtyards of the temple. Fittingly, it was they, it was the shepherds, whom God selected to help celebrate the birth of one who would be known as the friend of sinners, Jesus. Jesus, he came to save us. He came to live with us. He came to set us free. He will come again and bring peace and make things right. He is a savior. This is a story of his birth. Christmas is all about Jesus' birth. God became a human being so that he could die for our salvation. This is good news. This is good news, good news to share. You know, I noticed recently that all of the news is negative, and, and maybe it's always been that way. All the news, if you watch the headlines, read the headlines, it's all negative. And so it was very interesting when I heard about a book called Stop Reading the News by Rolf DeBelli. Stop Reading the News by Rolf DeBelli. Listen to what he says. Bad news is perceived as more relevant than good news. Negative information has twice the impact that positive information does. In psychology, this is called negativity bias, and it can be observed in even one-year-old infants. They have observed this in even one-year-old infants. They respond, one-year-old infants respond more sensitively to negative stimuli than to positive ones. Adults are no different. A stock falling by 10% makes us twice as unhappy as a stock climbing by 10% makes us happy. Negativity bias is innate. The news media hasn't inculcated, inculcated into us our weakness for negative information. The news media simply exploits this weakness in expert fashion, delivering a stream of shocking stories that are tailor-made for our anxious brains. But then this author digs deeper. The news continually stimulates our sympathetic nervous system, a part of our autonomic nervous system. Psychological stressors lead to the release of adrenaline by the hypothalamus. Adrenaline then leads to a rise in cortisol. So every garish story, every garish story can lead to the production of this stress hormone. Cortisol floods our bloodstream, weakening the immune system and inhibiting the production of growth hormones. By consuming the news, you're putting your body under stress. Chronic stress leads to anxiety and digestive and growth problems and leaves us to infection. Other potential side effects of news consumption include panic attacks, aggression, tunnel vision, and emotional desensitization. In short, consuming the news puts your psychological and physical health at risk. According to a study by the American Psychological Association, half of all adults suffer from the symptoms of stress caused by news consumption. Believe it or not, who would know? But that's negative news, right? That's negative news. That's bad news. Do you know that gospel actually means good news? That's what the whole, the whole word gospel means. This, what we're talking about tonight, is good news. It's positive news. That means you may be less likely to share it because apparently we like to share negative news. But this is good news. This is good, good news worth believing in. This is good news worth sharing. Jesus' birth in Bethlehem is good news. And I encourage you, as you leave this place, believe in the good news, share the good news. 
Focus on the good news, not just tonight, but this next year. And first and foremost, accept the good news. Accept the good news of the gospel. One of the best things, the most exciting things, the greatest things you can do this Christmas season is make Christmas your spiritual birthday. Maybe this is a time for you to turn your life back over to Jesus as Lord and Savior. This Christmas gift of Jesus is about Emmanuel, God with us, God's presence with us. And you just have to unwrap the gift. It's a gift. It's free. Some of you, I'm sure, come here and you may be a believer in Jesus. But let me ask you this. Is he your Lord and Savior? We're called to be followers of Jesus, not fans. Where do you stand with Jesus right now? Do you organize your life, organize your affairs around Jesus? Or do you prefer to follow the wisdom of the age and the ways of the world? Where do you stand with Jesus right now? I want to sum up the gospel, and really I want to sum up all the stories of the Bible for you right now. It it, it can be summed up with the the acronym that spells gospel. God created us to be with him. We see that in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God created us to be in a relationship with him. Adam and Eve walked with God in the Garden of Eden, but our sins, they separate us from God. We see that in Genesis 3. We don't think our sins are that bad because we're comparing ourselves with each other. We're not comparing ourselves with God. God's standard is righteousness, holiness, perfection. And one sin separates us from God. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were thrown out of the Garden of Eden. And when we sin, we are also separated from God. Sins cannot be removed by good works. We see that in the rest of the Old Testament, Genesis 4 through Malachi 4. That creates a dilemma because God loves us and he wants a relationship with us. So God took action, paying the price for our sin. Jesus went to the cross. He died on the cross for your sin, my sin, the world's sin. Imagine yourself, you're standing at the foot of the cross. Jesus is on the cross. Your sins go from you to him. He took your hell. He took my hell. He died in our place. Everyone who trusts in Jesus alone has eternal life. We see that in John through Jude. And life that's eternal means being with Jesus forever. Revelation 22.5. The gospel is about God's presence with us. The gospel, the, the, the birth of Jesus is, is about his birth to live with us, to die on the cross for us, to rise again. So have you trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior? When you trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you have eternal life, but you also have a fuller life. You have a complete life. You have abundant life. In John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Jesus wants us to live with him now. Live for him now. Live as followers of him now. In John 10, 10, Jesus says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Are you trusting in Jesus' abundant life? Some of you, as I said, may be believers in Jesus, but you're not really committed to him. I'm encouraging you. Make this your spiritual birthday where you commit to him. You're not really a follower of Jesus if you're not committed to him. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, Anyone can come after me. Anyone. But he or she must deny his or herself, take up his or her cross and follow. Are you denying yourself, taking up your cross to follow Jesus? That means you're ready to die for him. You're ready to follow Jesus at all costs. Where are you standing with that? The Bible uses four verbs. Verbs are action words to describe our commitment to Christ. Confess, believe, trust, commit. We're called to confess we are sinners in need of a Savior. Believe in Jesus as the one and only Savior. Trust in him and commit to him. A lot of you are on the believe section. You may not be on the commit and trust section. I would challenge you, encourage you. Do some soul searching tonight. Do some soul searching now. Don't wait till tomorrow. And make sure you're on the trust and commit section. Confess, that means we repent of our sins. That's hard for some of us. 
believe, believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except by him. Trust in him and commit to him. And that is the most important thing that you can do today. That's the most important thing you can do this Christmas season. I would like to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and go to a state of prayer. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Are you confident that you're trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior? If you need to rededicate your life to him, maybe you committed to him years ago, decades ago, but you're not living for him. I encourage you to pray this prayer to rededicate your life to him. If you're on the belief side, but you've never really committed to him, say the same prayer, a prayer of dedicating your life as being to be committed to him. Maybe you've never confessed, never believed, trusted or committed. Today's the day of salvation. I'm going to lead us in a short prayer. You're not saved by this prayer, but this is a prayer of telling God what you're doing. It's important because you're telling God that you want to be a follower of him. So if you need to rededicate your life to him or to trust in him for the first time or commit to him for the first time, pray this with me. Lord Jesus, I confess I've sinned and missed your perfect standard. I believe in you, Jesus. You died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I am trusting in you as Lord and Savior. I am committing my life to you. Please come into my life and help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you said that prayer, please share it with someone today. Angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. God wants a relationship with each and every one of you. He wants us to live with his presence, to live with him. Also, I need to say, if you have questions about God or the spiritual life, talk to me. I'd love to help you. If you are, Even if you're militantly against Christianity, but you have questions about Christianity, I would love to talk to you. I'm not going to you know, try to convince you to become a Christian if you're not ready. You know, Jesus said, count the cost. But I would love to answer your questions. I would love to answer your questions anytime. Did we get that to work? We're going to try it again? We're going to try Mary, did you know again?